you don't know because you don't know what I'm about to say, but the lyrics of the hymns and the songs that we have sung so far this morning, I do believe the Holy Spirit's been involved in that. Praise the Lord. Let me ask you to open your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14. We just read John chapter 13 a few moments ago. And our text this morning will come from John chapter 14. And we'll look at verses 1 through 6. Let me read these words. In your hearing, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Before... We ponder some thoughts from our text this morning. I want to briefly consider the context in which we find this event and compare it to the context of our own lives. That culture wasn't terribly unlike our culture in many ways. People are people. And we can imagine some of the issues they were dealing with. They lived in a culture in which there were many many entities making truth claims upon them. Of course, these were Jews, but even within the Jewish community, there were differences regarding certain elements of belief. They lived in a nation in the midst of a predominantly Hellenistic culture, a Greco-Roman culture that was highly influenced by Greek philosophy and pantheistic paganism of that culture. Their nation was under the strong arm of Rome with its religious pluralism, their own set of gods, and the claims to aspects of divinity of the various Caesars. We also understand that because of its location on the economic trade routes, Palestine hosted merchants from all over the world who brought with them their their philosophies and religions. The people of that time in that place had a veritable grab bag of choices when it came to religious claims. And plural, it was a pluralistic culture indeed. And although the more traditional Jews, represented by the Pharisees, had great influence, we know the Sadducees who accepted only the Torah as authoritative and at best, rejected the spiritual side of human existence, also had their followers. Added to this mix, we can be assured that there were those who were the irreligious of their day. 
we need only think of Barabbas and the thief who was crucified alongside Jesus as examples. Indeed, the Herods themselves were grossly immoral. Into this culture came Jesus Christ, God incarnate, with a message of clarifying and exclusive truth. Of course, we live in a pluralistic culture, and we are constantly bombarded by ideologies and religions making truth claims on us. Believe this. Live like this. This is what's right, what's good, what's true. We don't have time this morning to identify or describe all of those ideologies and philosophies and religions calling out to us from every quarter. That is material for another time. Hopefully, though, we know them for what they are and what they teach. They are certainly vast and compelling in many ways. Yet, it is into this culture that Jesus Christ still speaks that same message of clarifying and exclusive truth. And in this passage in the book of John, part of that message is so poignantly expressed. I refer to the remarkable worldview statement in verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, before we explore the different parts of what our Lord said, I want to consider what led up to it. Of course, Jesus is now on his way to the cross. He is nearly finished with his earthly ministry. He had just partaken of what we call the Last Supper. He has identified Judas as the one who would betray him, and he has informed Peter that he would deny him. He told his disciples that he was going away. And they couldn't go with him just yet. He also spoke of the unkindness he was to receive from them, particularly from Peter. We have already read the remarkable narrative recorded in John 13. Try to capture the intensity of emotion that must have been running through the few remaining disciples' hearts. Our Lord knew this, and as the good shepherd, he wanted to both comfort and instruct his friends. And so our Lord sought to comfort the troubled hearts of his disciples. Look again at our text. I am, excuse me, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, to the statement, Thomas responded in an interesting way. He said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now, when Thomas complained that he did not know where Jesus was going, it seems he was simply ignoring what Jesus had just said. Hadn't Jesus just said that he was going to the Father's house and that he was going to prepare a place for them so that they could be with him there? And Thomas immediately responded, 
by saying he didn't know where Jesus was going. Wasn't he listening? I would like to suggest that he was listening, but he wasn't hearing at this point. You see, it's a common malady, I believe, of those of us who claim to be disciples of our Lord Jesus. Thomas Hart was being troubled. And he had reasons based on what our Lord had just told him. But it was going to get worse as events begin to unfold. Thomas didn't yet know the half of it. Here were the disciples, the few remaining disciples who loved Jesus and left all to follow him, really to put their reputations and lives on the line to follow him. And now he was leaving them. And he just told them they couldn't follow where he was going. What now? And so the cares and the worries and the supposed implications began to infuse upon Thomas's heart. And he was troubled. And don't we do that? Don't we come face to face with fears and concerns and dangers and we begin to imagine all sorts of terrible consequences and in spite of the fact that our Lord has exhorted us over and over again in the word to fear not, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he is our rock and our salvation, that he will protect us, that he does all things well. In spite of all the promises of Scripture, we let our hearts become troubled. Aren't we listening? Well, yes and no. Maybe a better question is, aren't we believing? But beyond that, Thomas indicated that he wasn't thinking properly. You see, Thomas was thinking in a temporal, earthly way. That temporal thinking colored what he was hearing. He was so focused on one thing, what our Lord was actually saying didn't fit into his mental framework. We know that many of Jesus' early disciples believed that Jesus was going to be their earthly king. They believed that he had come to rescue them from the tyranny of Rome and the abuses of the Herodians. They anticipated that he would set up a great temporal kingdom in pomp and power, and perhaps they would even have an important station within that kingdom. And when it became increasingly clear that Jesus was not going to be their great earthly liberator, they began to fall away. Indeed, right to the end, Judas thought Jesus was going to make him rich. Even the last of the disciples, no doubt, still had some of that temporal vision in their minds. So now he's going away? Where was he going? There to be anointed king and restore the kingdom to Israel. And why couldn't they go with him? How could they get there? How could they know the way if they didn't know where it was? But again, don't we do that? Don't we expect to prosper in this world? Don't we often even 
uh, or don't we expect the comforts, even demand the successes and the pleasures of this world? Don't we often even accuse God or begin to doubt his goodness and his power simply because our circumstances aren't working out according to our expectations of how things ought to be? Are we not terribly like Thomas? Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And so our Lord responds with this profound worldview statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, a couple of times I've called this a worldview statement. I say that because I think this amazing statement by our Lord decisively supersedes and excludes any other truth claim which would seek to find a place in our hearts and minds. Our Lord here summarizes exactly who he is and what our view of him must be. He explains reality simply answers the ultimate questions of life and leaves no place for any competitors. Briefly, just to remind us, what is a worldview? There are several good definitions of worldview. The precise wording is less important in this case than an understanding of the concept. But we have to understand that everyone has a worldview whether they can articulate it or not, because a worldview is simply the set of beliefs through which a person sees and interprets the world and the values which determine how a person behaves. Not only do we observe the world and what is occurring in the world, but we apply meaning to it. And then we act in accordance with that meaning. So our worldview will inform actions and attitudes. Understanding worldview isn't just for philosophers. Nancy Piercy, in her excellent book, Total Truth, said a worldview is not the same thing as a formal philosophy. Otherwise, it would be only for professional philosophers. Even ordinary people have a set of convictions about how reality functions and how they should live. Because we are made in God's image, we all seek to make sense of life. Some convictions are conscious, while others are unconscious, but together they form a more or less consistent picture of reality. That consistent picture of reality to our minds constitutes our worldview. Another way to say it is that our worldview is our answer to the question, what is real and what difference does it make to me? You see, our worldview determines what we believe, what we value, and what we do. And make no mistake, we live out of our worldview. We will do what we want to do. We may not be able to do everything we would like to do, but what we do will be based upon what we believe and what we value. We prioritize our options based on our belief and value systems, and we make decisions and live out of those priorities every time. The question is then, of course, what should be our worldview? Jesus has told us, I am the way, 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a profound statement here. He doesn't say, I will show you the way, tell you the truth, and demonstrate the life. Although he does all of that. But he says, I am, which of course is another one of his claims to divinity. I am how to go. I am how to think. I am how to live. Let's consider each of these. And I hope you will see with me that our Lord's words are both foundational and essential for the way we see and interpret the world and how we live in it. And remember, these are words of comfort and clarification. I am the way. Notice that our Lord does not say he is a way. He does not say he is one of the ways. He makes an exclusive statement. He is the way. No one comes except through him. Period. End of discussion. Take it or leave it, but there is no other way. But the question is, the way to where? Well, he already said he was going to the Father. What he's saying is that we are on a pilgrimage, a journey. We are going somewhere. This is not all there is. It's not even particularly important. We are heading for eternity. There is, in fact, a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And contrary to some people's thinking, we simply don't cease to exist at our physical death. We are not annihilated, nor are we simply absorbed into a cosmic oneness with the rest of the universe. In Mark 10, 29 and 30, our Lord said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. There is an eternity to prepare for. There is indeed a heaven to gain, but also a hell to shun. Matthew 10, 28 records our Lord's words, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now that is important because we live in a time in which the official educational position of our government schools and our cultural mindset is that all that is real and believable is that which is empirical, that is observable, natural, and scientific. It is assumed in our education or our academic communities that nature is all there is. Therefore, after death is nothing. Says who? Says Carl Sagan. The cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. Well, not according to our Lord Jesus Christ. What Jesus is saying is that 
One, there is a Father. Two, there is a way to go to the Father. And three, all other ways fail to get to the Father. Now, that is important to us because we live in a time when many, many voices are clamoring that there are many ways to get to God. We hear it all the time, don't we? Dear friends, we are now even hearing it within the so-called evangelical church. We are told all the religions lead to the same place and that all gods are the same God, only with different names. Not according to the Bible. Acts 4.12 tells us, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. A simple study of the character traits of those various gods will make it clear that all gods are not the same God. There is only one true God. Jesus refers to the Father. And we need to get to the Father. But the fact is we can't get to him on our own. Because of our sin, there is a great gulf between us and the Father. A gulf we can't get across. But Christ is the bridge that spans that gulf. The highway referenced in Isaiah 35 that takes us to heaven. The ladder upon which we climb to glory. Now we can't do that on our own. But he is the way. The only way. But secondly, he is also the truth. He tells us what to believe. Now, there are many truth claims out there. We must be aware of this, and most of them contradict each other in one way or another. But truth is truth. A truth claim is either true or it's not. And what is not truth is falsity. Now, that is important for us because... The prevailing cultural bias today is that truth is relative. There can be many and even contradictory truths. Whatever you want to be true, that is true for you. Or, simply stated, there is no such thing as propositional truth. Truth that is true for everyone. Rather, we are being told in countless ways... The only truth that matters is what is true for you personally. Well, of course, that's ridiculous. And most certainly that notion doesn't work in our daily lives. Nor in a civilized culture. And only leads to chaos and craziness. Yet the reality, or should I say the truth, is that our precious young people, with apologies to our young adults, I would add, or I would include all those in their 30s and younger. I guess when you get to be my age, people in their 30s and younger are young people. Our precious young people are under an onslaught of propaganda to capture their minds and hearts into being so overwhelmed or burdened with conflicting and confusing messages about reality that many 
just give up caring anymore. The burden of trying to figure out what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, in this socially dysfunctional society is so exhausting, so discouraging, that it is far, far easier to be a good postmodern and come to the existential conclusion that all that really matters is what I believe is true for me. To us, our Lord Jesus says, I am the truth. Do you find yourself utterly wearied by the pressure of our society to think and believe things that don't resonate in your heart and mind as true? To you, he says, I am the truth. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I can't really take the time this morning to offer studies and statistics to illustrate our culture's diabolical attack on the truth. But just as an example, consider this. Christian Smith, in his book, Soul Searching the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, says that the majority of students believe that God wants me to be good, and pretty much everyone is good. Also, the primary thing God wants is for me to be happy. Also, God is there for me when I need him, but doesn't really require anything of me. According to the Apologetics Resource Center, 20% of Americans believe in a new age or neo-pagan concept of God. 30% believe that reincarnation is true or possible. Indeed, karma is the new buzzword in mainstream appeals to the youth of America regarding motivation and good behavior. Postmodernism has had a devastating effect on the belief systems in America. And the slide away from the God of truth is not slowing down in this country. But I love Francis Schaeffer's quote, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. Of course, he's referring to Jesus Christ. Truth about reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality and the intellectual holding of that total truth and then living in light of that truth. And I do think it bears saying often that a great danger for us in the evangelical Christian community today is the danger of syncretism, that of being influenced by and trying to blend false and unbiblical ideas and beliefs with the truth of the Christian faith. This, I am persuaded, is a great tool of Satan today in his battle against the people of God, infusing elements of error, wrong thinking, lies into the minds and hearts of those who believe they are thinking and living in accordance with God's word. Syncretism is very very dangerous because it is unconscious. So it affects us 
without our knowing it. We think we are being true to the scripture when in fact our views in some areas contradict the very word. It clouds our vision, causing us to lose conviction in vital areas. It can also create doubt about the authority of scripture in certain areas of life. What ends up uh, happening then is that we try to fit Christianity into our cultural worldview. And we end up living like the nice unbelievers in our culture. Instead of being salt and light, we become just another special interest group. We see this happening in so-called Christian education. It has certainly happened in the biological sciences, psychology, economics, and interpretation of history. But wherever syncretism exists, that is the place where scripture and the biblical worldview are not being followed. Rather, we twist the word to fit our views. Instead of being transformed, we remain conformed to the world and ignore Scripture truth. We must understand that Scripture stands above culture. Some of culture is good where it conforms to Scripture, but where it doesn't, we must live out of step with our culture and in step with the Word of God. Scripture judges and evaluates culture not vice versa. Everything must be evaluated by and subjected to the word of God. Jesus Christ said, I am the truth, not just a truth. And so we agree with the Apostle Paul when he said in 2 Corinthians 10, 4-6, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. As our Lord was praying for his disciples, he prayed to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth in John 17, 17. He, the living word, is truth. Which brings us to our last point. He declares himself to be the life. That is to say, he is not only what we are to believe, he is also the source and goal of of how we are to live. He is the creator and sustainer and goal of all things. According to Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In John 11, verses 25 and 26, our Lord says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Paul could say in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live 
is Christ. In fact, that was the point of John writing this gospel. He said in chapter Excuse me. He said in chapter 20, verse 31, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ, is, or Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe this? So Paul could say in Philippians 1, 21, For to me to live is Christ. In fact, that was the point of John writing this gospel. He said in chapter 20, verse 31, but these are written, excuse me, sorry, I'm repeating myself. I'll do it. It's worth it. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we are not simply talking about eternal life here. We are talking about our moment by moment, day by day existence. He is the life. He gives life and he sustains life. And without him, there is no life now and forever. And I think the order is significant here. He is the way that gives us our eternal perspective. And he is the truth. That is orthodoxy. And he is the life. That is orthopraxy. He is not only what we believe, he is how we believe. And the order is significant Because right living grows out of right thinking. Remember when I said we live out of our worldview? So Paul, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, says, right on the heel of the previous verses in chapter 11, which we just read, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our Lord said in John eight thirty two and 33, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Earlier in that chapter, in verse 12, our Lord had said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Remember our thoughts of the problem of syncretism? This is it. Wrong thinking results in wrong living. You know, God wants me to be happy. And so I find myself comfortable in my pursuit of pleasure. Brothers and sisters, God wants us to be holy. Happiness is an outgrowth of holiness. Syncretism has persuaded us to confuse the American dream with kingdom living. You know, God wants me to be wealthy, or at least comfortable. Really? Remember his exhortation to his disciples in Mark 8, 34 and 35. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Janie Cheney, in a recent World Magazine article, made this astute observation. Perhaps 
we should stop confusing a Christian lifestyle with the Christian life. The world has sometimes been friendly with the church, but the world has always, in every generation, been deeply hostile to Christ. His call to self-denial is never in fashion. His shameless sacrifice for people who didn't ask for it, never good taste. And I am absolutely persuaded that this is Satan's strategy. Because if he cannot have you, a believer, then he will seek to make you useless when it comes to glorifying God in your sphere of influence. With your children, your classmates, your workmates, your community. You see, we have tried to equate middle-class American materialism with Christian living. That's syncretism. Again, we confuse a so-called Christian lifestyle with the Christian life. But we have abandoned the lordship of Jesus Christ over all things and relegated his influence only to the church and churchy-type things, and that only when it's convenient. We have laid claim to personal ownership of material goods, equated financial prosperity with godliness, lost complete sight of the biblical understanding of stewardship, and so have so diluted the notion of sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of his kingdom that we consider every inconvenience endured for the expression of the faith as some great and noble quasi-martyrdom. And the creed we are teaching our children, the main thing that matters in this life is, a, is achieving the American dream. Think of it. What was the reason your parents and teachers told you to do well in school and get good grades? To get a good job when you grow up, right? And what are you teaching your children is the reason to get a good education. Is it to know the totality of God's created truth so that they can use that knowledge to glorify him and be a blessing to his people? Or to get a good job? What am I saying here? I am saying that Jesus Christ has declared himself to be Lord over every aspect of our lives, our thoughts, and our plans, and our actions. Hear his words from Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. These are exclusive words to us. And so we come back to the question, how can we know the way? Into that culture at that time, Jesus spoke the answer, and into our culture, at this very time, Jesus speaks the same eternal answer. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I ask you today, do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what you need to know. Go think and live in the reality of that worldview system. Don't let your culture or circumstances or your fleshly desire determine your view of him. Let him determine your view of our world, for he is the way and the truth and the life.
Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is easy for us to be distracted and, and confused and, and drawn in a direction that is not according to your truth and according to your word. And Father, this morning, I would pray that you would help us to be able to uh, find our way through all those distractions and, and the, the confusions of this world, that we would see our Lord Jesus Christ and he would be our all in all. I pray, Father, that our lives would be such that would bring honor and glory, glory to him. We know that our Lord is the way and the truth and the life. And there's no way to come to the Father except through him. And so, Lord, it is my desire that we would um, be able to focus in on that and bring you honor and glory in, in all that we do and all that we say. I pray this in Christ's name and for his sake.